And we're studying the life of Elijah on Sunday night, and I want us to kind of just take a quick look at that because it's, in, it's kind of important that we get this in tonight to finish this uh, series um, on the life of Elijah this summer. The 21st chapter of 1 Kings, um, not only is it a real challenge to try to speak on, uh, on a night like this, but the subject tonight, as it, um, as it developed, is a difficult one um, in the 21st chapter of 1 Kings because it, is a, it deals with the end of the patience of God. As a matter of fact, um, this chapter deals with divine judgment of God or the wrath of God. It's not, an easy, it's not a beautiful picture, really. Um, few years ago when I was in um, college out at Hardin-Simmons, my wife and I and another couple went down to uh, San Angelo, Texas and um, heard R.G. Lee, who is a great uh, Southern Baptist preacher, preach a sermon entitled Payday Someday for the 1,000th time, believe it or not. It was this um, 21st chapter of 1 Kings. Um, it's not easy to preach about the wrath of God. As a matter of fact, um, this is a, um, a part of theology that's gone begging. There was a time, I think, when uh, the judgment of God was thundered from every pulpit in America. But how long has it been since you've heard a sermon on the wrath of God, on the end of the patience of God? And as we've studied the life of Elijah and followed him uh, along, we have, uh, we have been aware of God's love and God's care and God's patience. But there comes a time somewhere on, uh, in, the, uh, in the, uh, dealing, God's dealing with man where his patience runs out, where God just says, that's enough. And so I want to set in the outline a principle, and I want to illustrate that principle from the Scripture and then deal with it in 1 Kings. And the principle is found in the book of Proverbs. If you want to turn, that's chapter 29 of Proverbs. And verse 1, Proverbs is that book that comes right after Psalms. And verse 1. He says, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. I think we need to do a little work on that verse and understand that where it says, and a man, he's not conditioning that upon sex or age or geography. It applies to a woman as well. It's mankind in general. In other words, whoever hardens his neck, it's the picture of, of stubborn uh, rebellion. It's a picture of one who refuses to submit to God. It's a picture of a stubborn will. Whoever hardens his neck, stiffens his neck, will, something will happen to him suddenly. He will be, he will be broken without remedy. It is terminal. And there is no second chance. There is no remedy. That man will be suddenly broken and there'll be no second chance. I remember as a little kid, I um, wasn't getting my way. And I was uh, having a little temper tantrum, which I was uh, famous, I think. 
I can remember going to my room and I was crying. My father came in there and he said, now I want you to hush and I want, I want, I want it to stop right now. Well, I just kept it up. Just wailing just as loud as I could and just on and on. And after a while, I heard my father coming with uh, quickened steps and I knew that the end had come. Uh, and he had this raise, he had this, this big belt that he used and he, he, he walked inside, uh, stepped inside my room and said, come here, you know. And I knew that I had gone beyond the line. I had stepped over the line. And there's no second chance, no uh, second opportunity. I said, I, I, you know, I'm sorry, Dad, I'll never do I won't do it again, I promise, I'll be good. And, uh, but I would stepped over the line, it was too late. Somewhere on God's, in God's timetable, there is a time when it's too late. A man who stiffens his neck and refuses stubbornly the reproof of God will without remedy be broken. In other words, this text is saying that you can't play games with God. A man who hears reproof and hears reproof and stiffens his neck will be broken without remedy. Now there's some illustrations of that in the Scripture. I want to give you those, just not read them because of the lack of time, but just point them out. Because God... Um, uh, responds like this to, to, um, to cities. In the 19th chapter of Genesis, there are two cities by the name of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the scripture says that they continued in their wickedness and the wrath of God was stored up. And one day God said, that's enough. And the Bible said that He rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham stood one day and looked out over where the city was and the smoke rose up from where Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed like the smoke of a furnace. And archaeologists have not found those cities. They were utterly destroyed. And it is believed that they're beneath the Dead Sea. He leveled them, put them below sea level, covered them with the Dead Sea. Sometimes God's patience runs out with individuals. In the 12th chapter of the book of Acts, verse 21, it describes the day that Herod came out. Josephus said he was dressed in, in garments that were lined with silver, and as he stepped out early in the morning to speak, the sun caught his garment and made it look effulgent, bright, and brilliant. And as he spoke, the people cried, It's the voice of God, the voice of a God, not the voice of a man. And the Scripture said that Herod basked in that glory and refused to give God the glory. And the angels of God struck Herod and the worms ate him. Sometimes God's patience runs out with a nation. In the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 36 verse 11 beginning there, for 300 years the nation of Judah had lived under the rule of wicked kings and finally God said to Judah, that's enough. And He destroyed the walls of Jerusalem. And He destroyed the temple of Jerusalem. And He leveled the city. And God's patience had run out. That's what we find in the 21st chapter of 1 Kings. We find that example, a unique example of that, as God's patience runs out with, two, with a couple unique to the dealings of God. Their name... Their names are Ahab and Jezebel. Let me just set the scenario, the picture. 
One time a a Jezreelite by the name of Naboth had a little piece of land that was up hard by the palace of Ahab, the king of, uh, of, of Israel. And Ahab wanted that piece of land so he could plant him a vineyard in it, build, uh, have him a garden. And so he came to uh, Naboth and he said, let me have that piece of land so I can make a garden there. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll trade you some other property that I have for that. Or I'll give you what it's worth if you'll just give me that, that little plot of land you own." And Naboth said, I can't do that. Leviticus 25 says that a man cannot sell the inheritance of his father. He said, it's against the will and the judgment of God for me to do that. And so Ahab, the scripture says, was very sullen. He pouted. He went back to his house, laid down on his bed and began to sulk. Jezebel came to him. She said, what's the matter with you? He said, well, Naboth has a vineyard. He has some property. I want it for myself. He won't let me have it. And Jezebel said, aren't you in charge here? Aren't you the king? Is this the way the king acts? He said, you just stay right where you are. I'll get you that property. And so she sent out letters to all the elders, the rulers of the, of the country, and said, you, get, you declare a fast and call all the people together in this big banquet. And you have Naboth there. You have two scoundrels sitting one on each side of him who will lie. And in the midst of the banquet, you have these men, these liars, stand and say that this man cursed God and the king and we'll have him put to death. So according to the scenario, they brought him in to the, to the banquet hall. And there he was sitting there unsuspectedly. And all of a sudden, these liars, these false witnesses stood to say, This man cursed God and the king. They took him out and they killed him. They stoned him to death. And God said to Elijah, I've had enough with Ahab. I want you to remember that this same God in love and patience had been three years trying to bend the neck, the head of Ahab. And he'd sent three years of drought on the land. Then they gathered on the Mount of Carmel, and God in His mighty power sent fire to consume the altar, to reveal His power and His might. And Ahab refused to bend his head, refused the reproof of God. And finally God said, that's enough. And God said, listen to this, verse 18 following. Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria, Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs lick up the blood of Naboth, the dogs shall lick up your blood, even yours. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He just There he was in the presence of of Ahab, and he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. That's an interesting word in the Hebrew. It means to marry, to wed evil, to be so joined inseparably to evil. Behold, I will bring evil upon you 
and will utterly sweep you away and will cut from Ahab every male, both bond and free. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. And of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And the one who dies in the fields, the birds of heaven shall eat. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel his wife incited him. And he acted very abominably in, forming, in following idols according to the, all the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel." And it came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me. I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. Now, did God follow through on what he promised? I want you to turn to the 22nd chapter and look at verse 37. 22nd chapter, verse, verse uh, 37. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. Did he follow through with Jezebel? Turn to the next book, 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings 9, verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, it is, well, is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? Then he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three officials looked down at him, and he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. When he came in, he ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And God said, That's enough. Now, this kind of a sermon has to have an application. I want you to get this, and then we'll quit. There is a principle here, a general principle I want to get, and then I want to amplify that with three statements, and then, we'll, then we're through. Number one, the general principle is that God's wheels grind slowly, but exceedingly fine. I don't know when the day will be when God says that is enough, no more. But that day's coming. Uh, did you watch with uh, 
some um, horror, chagrin, and the um, the gay um, league, the gay uh, group in San Francisco met him for debate in one of the lobbies, one of the places where they were. And they had this man dressed up like a woman, a lesbian Jesus. And they had a man dressed up like Jerry Falwell and they came up and they took off his clothes and he had on black underwear and garter belts. He was a, a homosexual. And they flaunted and they taunted uh, Jerry Falwell and the lesbian Jesus pranced around in the, uh, in the lobby of the hotel and mocked the name of Christ. Now, I don't know um, how you feel about that, but somehow it seems that God it has to judge that someday. The wheels of God made grind slowly. As a matter of fact, if you look sometime at the 8th chapter of Ecclesiastes, verse 11, it says that the people, had, uh, the people were saying, God's not going to do anything to us because He had tarried His judgment for so long. God's not going to do anything to us. We're safe. Somewhere, the judgment of God is sure. No man knows that. Now, three statements about that general principle. Number one, there is an end to the patience of God, and that's a sobering thought. There's an end to the patience of God. For the other side of the love of God is the wrath of God. I read somewhere recently that Bonnie Parker... When, when her, um, she and uh, Clyde were gunned down in their uh, car, she had a half-eaten sandwich in her hand. A halfway, halfway through a hurried meal, she gagged on the blood in her own throat. Halfway through some activity, halfway through some service, halfway through some meal, halfway through some party, God's going to say, that's enough. Second, God keeps His promise and no one can stop it. God keeps His promise and no one can stop it. God plays no favorites. If God promised judgment, judgment is what will come. Number three, God acknowledges humility and none should refuse it. It just stands out that even when Ahab, who was so wicked and so rebellious, humbled himself and put on sackcloth and was sorry for what had happened, God was moved by that humility. None should refuse it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being in this place tonight, for these young men and women who've come to share with us in this service. And we thank you for your love and compassion and patience that bears with us through all of our sin and our rebellion. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray. Amen.